following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're going to read this morning James chapter 4. This is where we are. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, and Abby Wills, I'm just scanning to find Abby, uh, is going to come and read the passage for us this morning. Thanks, Abby. Submit yourselves to God. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that fellowship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says that without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? Thank you, Abby. So as you read the book of James, in some ways it's kind of like listening to one half of a telephone conversation. Have you had this experience? You know, someone's in the room, they're on the phone, and you're trying to work out from what they say what the person on the other end of the phone is saying. That's kind of like what's happening when we're reading James. We, hear, we know what James is saying. We hear James talking and writing to these various groups of Christians. We don't know exactly what's going on in the communities that he's writing to. We don't hear what's happening on the other end of the phone. And so we're trying to piece it together based on what we hear James saying. And we're trying to figure out what, what might be happening and what might be going on. And what's abundantly clear from this passage is that in these communities, these various communities that James is writing to, there's a lot of conflict that is happening. We don't know exactly what's happening. We don't know exactly what people are fighting over, what these disputes are over, but we know there's a lot of hostility that's going on. James uses in this passage words like fights and quarrels and slander and judging to describe some of the behaviors. That are happening. In fact, he even talks about people going so far as killing. He says, you, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. I mean, we have a few conflicts at Shaw, but as far as I know, <laughs> we have not yet uh, come to murder. You know, you, these are not the kind of elders' meetings you want, sitting around, like, you know, 
who's uh, killed someone else in this last month in the church. You know, but this, like, unless, unless James is being metaphorical, and maybe he is, but he says, you don't get what you want, so you kill. He's actually talking about situations where people, there's so much conflict, it's actually come to murder. Someone's taken the life of someone else. Might have happened more than once, we don't know. So clearly, the relationships in these churches are not all rosy. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of hostility going on. But what is interesting is the way that James approaches this. What he doesn't do is give them a method for resolving conflict. He could have, and there's a place for that, but he doesn't give them. Here's the three steps to successful conflict resolution. He doesn't give them, here's a nice 12-step process to, to negotiating your way out of conflict. He doesn't tell them how to deal with their conflicts. What he does, you hear it straight away in the first verse of this chapter, is he plunges below the surface of the conflict, and he asks, what causes these fights? and quarrels among you. So he's going to a deeper level than just the arguments, the surface level, the superficial. He's asking, what, what, what's underneath these conflicts? What's driving this? You know, it's, it's like the analogy of a pot of boiling water that's bubbling over. And there's two ways you can try and stop that and contain that. One is by shoving the lid on as hard as you can, try and keep the water in the pot. The other is by what? Turning down the heat. And that's what James is trying to do. He's trying to say, okay, we've got all this conflict that's going on. Let's not just shove the lid on it and try and prevent people getting burned. Let's try and figure out what, where's the heat coming from? What's causing fights and quarrels among you? So he goes deep under the surface. In fact, he goes to some very, very deep levels in this passage that in some ways, as we get into them, are not going to seem directly connected to conflict. But as we go through, you'll see it all comes out and, and it is. But we've got to deal with some deep issues first. So let's follow James in this path that he, that he plots, looking at the source, the root cause of some of these conflicts that are going on in the community. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now, the word desires is the Greek word hedone. And in its most basic meaning, it just means a desire for happiness, desire for pleasure, desire to seek out that which we think makes us happy or, or we think causes us some kind of pleasure, whether it's physical pleasure, emotional pleasure, relational pleasure, whatever it might be. We're desiring that which makes us happy. And, I mean, in a sense, what's wrong with that, right? Like, what, nothing wrong with desiring to be happy. Nothing wrong with desiring pleasure. I mean, these, these are good desires that God has given us. These are, these are healthy desires, the desire themselves are not the problem. In fact, James never in this passage says that those desires in and of themselves are wrong. God's created us as human beings with a desire to be happy, with a desire to experience contentment, enjoyment, satisfaction in life. That's all fine. The problem is, because we have a sinful heart, these desires become distorted, and they become warped, and they become turned inward on ourselves. And so what originally began as a healthy desire that human beings had for happiness and to pursue that happiness in healthy ways that honors God, that honors other people, what it becomes because of our sinful hearts, because of our proclivity towards sin, it becomes the pursuit of selfishness and the pursuit of these pleasures that are just self-absorbed, self-gratifying, self-obsessed self-fulfilling, self-indulgent. It's just my happiness. It becomes this kind of me first 
attitude. I just want whatever is going to make me happy. I don't care about anyone else. I just want to satisfy my own pleasures. I want to just experience as much pleasure and happiness as I can, whatever that means for anyone else. It just becomes this, this selfish, self-serving heart that each of us have. That's what James is really talking about by desires, these selfish, self-serving desires within us. That's why that word hedone in Greek, it's the word from where we get the English word hedonism. Hedonism. And hedonism is a philosophy. It's a whole philosophy of life that says the highest goal in life is the pursuit of pleasure and happiness. The highest human good, the highest human virtue is the pursuit of personal pleasure, personal happiness. It is seeking pleasure and happiness above anything, anyone else. What's making me happy, that's what I've got to go after. So as an, as an extreme example of hedonism, think of there's a guy, Jordan Belfort, who was the main character in the movie The Wolf of Wall Street. I hope you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I think it's pretty explicit from what I hear. But that guy was a New York stockbroker and was a total hedonist. So a guy that has just had an insatiable thirst for pleasure. Whatever form he could get that pleasure in, women, money, power, ambition, whatever it looked like, whatever would bring him the most pleasure in life, he just had this insatiable appetite for that. That's hedonism, and it's one of its extreme forms. But it doesn't always look like that, does it? It doesn't always look like Jordan Belfort. It looks like all kinds of everyday things as well. It looks like in these communities James is writing to. You've got people here who have these desires, selfish desires, and it seems like in their case what they're desiring are things that belong to someone else. They're desiring things that, that are not theirs but belong to someone else. Let me just adjust my microphone here. We don't know exactly what they're desiring. Could be someone else's husband or wife. Could be someone else's job, someone else's money. But they are desiring. They think what's going to make them happy is this thing that someone else has got. And that's leading to a whole lot of conflict, a whole lot of tension, even to the point of murder within this community. And for us, again, we're not, we're not going to those lengths, but just think about what this kind of hedonistic desire does to our hearts and what it does to our relationships when we are driven just purely by a selfishness by a me first kind of attitude what that does I mean how many marriages have busted up because husband or wife are running off after someone else because they think that person is going to make them what happy because they're not happy in their marriage this you know my wife my husband they're not making me happy there's no I tell you what I hear sometimes there's no spark anymore I'm, I'm saying I hear that from other couples, not from Anna, just to clarify. <laughs> There's no spark anymore, you know? I'm not, she's not making me happy. He's not making me, they, they're not fulfilling my needs anymore. It's a very hedonistic way of looking at marriage. And so off they go pursuing someone else who they think is going to bring them pleasure. There's a hedonism in that. I tell you, it's not even necessarily running off after another person. I've seen husbands run off after another kind of life. And they want to be the bachelor again. They want, to, they want to be one of the lads again. They want to just become a workaholic. They want to be the party guy or the party girl again. And it's that lifestyle that drives them away because they think that lifestyle is going to make them happy. Even if we've never heard of the word hedonism, I would suggest it's under a lot of the ways that we behave 
in life. Think of family conflicts that break down. I was talking to a Christian lawyer who said some of the worst family breakdowns happen over wills and estates in families. Once people get the idea there's a bit of money up for grabs because someone in the family's died and there's a reasonable estate there, it gets ugly. And relationships that used to be great suddenly fall apart because of greed, and it's another form of hedonism. It's those selfish desires. James says they battle within us, even though we might know better, even though we, 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 we don't like them at one level, but they battle away, and they influence us, and they seem to drag us into things we know are not healthy, but we keep making dumb decisions because we're led by these stupid hedonistic desires. James is saying so much of the conflict we experience is because of our own selfish hearts underneath it. And then James goes even deeper. He goes down another level, and he connects this to our relationship with God. He says in verse 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity towards God? Anyone who chooses to become a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So James is saying, when you act this way, when you are driven just by these hedonistic desires, you're not only going to damage your relationships with people around you, you're going to wreck your relationship with God. You're going to damage your relationship with God. That phrase, you adulterous people, it comes out of the book of Hosea in the Old Testament where God describes Israel like his spouse. And he says, Israel, when you just run off after these other gods, you run off after these pagan religions, it's like you're becoming an adulteress. You're becoming an unfaithful spouse. And God looks at us the same way. God created us to have this bond with him. He created us to have this connection with him. God says to us, I want to be the one who meets those deepest desires that you have. You want to seek happiness? Good. God says, come to me. And I will lead you into a happiness far deeper than just your circumstances can give you. God says to us, you want, you want to experience pleasure? I will lead you into eternal pleasures. The Bible says eternal pleasures are at God's right hand. He says, you want to be truly fulfilled in life? Come to me. I'll satisfy those desires. At, at the deepest level, God created us with these desires. Desire itself is a good thing. But God enabled those desires to be fulfilled in relationship with him. Of course, there's many other things that can make us happy. But fundamentally, God says, I've created those desires to find their fulfillment in relationship with me. And as long as you're just running off after other stuff, just running off after other people, running off after money, sex, power, whatever it is, then you are losing your focus. You're losing your focus in me. I'm the only one who can truly, genuinely satisfy those desires. And when we reject that, when we say, no, thanks, God, I just want to find satisfaction over here. I want to find satisfaction in these shallow, superficial ways. Then what happens is we provoke God to jealousy. That's what James says in the next verse. In verse 5, Do you think the Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit that he's caused to dwell within us? That's a tough verse to interpret. Uh, you could get five different translations. You could look at five parallel translations on your device right now and find they all translate that verse different ways because there's some textual issues in there. One of them is around whether the Spirit that James is talking about is the Holy Spirit or whether it's our human spirit. I th without going into all the technicalities of it, I think probably James is talking about our human spirit. And he's saying God has created us with a human spirit. You know, he's breathed life into us. He's created us as beings with a capacity to know him. And God longs for our spirit to connect with his spirit. 
He longs for our deepest desires to be met by him. And when we refuse that, when we reject that, when we turn away from God, when our human spirit just becomes bent inward rather than turned outward towards God, he becomes jealous. He jealously longs. Not in, a, not in a mean-spirited kind of way, not a petty sort of jealousy. Like we generally think jealousy is a bad thing. But you think about it, husbands and wives, if your spouse walked off, ran away with someone else, was unfaithful to you, you would feel a kind of jealousy about that. And it wouldn't be a mean-spirited, petty jealousy. It would be a good jealousy because it's based on love. There's a kind of jealousy that acknowledges you belong to me, and I belong to you. And when that's lost, I become jealous. It's a jealousy that comes out of love. Not desiring something that was never yours to begin with, but desiring something that, that is yours. And there is a relationship, and there is love established. And that's how God exercises jealousy, is that we belong to him. And when we reject that, and we try and meet these deep desires in other ways, God is jealously longing for us to return to him. Not vindictive, not a punitive kind of thing, but just longing like a spouse who's been betrayed, longing for us to return to him so that he can satisfy those desires. C.S. Lewis uh, has a wonderful quote on this in uh, his book, his essay, The Weight of Glory. Have we got that up there, Malcolm? I don't have it in front of me. There we go. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So it's a whole different view of desire, isn't it? He's saying our desires are good things. The problem is we settle for too little. We settle for money, sex, ambition, superficial things to try and satisfy those desires because we can't imagine what it means to be truly fulfilled. We can't imagine what God truly offers us, and yet God says, here I am, and I will satisfy those desires in a far, far deeper way than you can possibly imagine. Now, you might feel like this has nothing to do with conflict in relationships where we started. We have gone to a very deep level, but what James is saying is there's an inseparable connection between your relationship with God and your relationship with one another. There's an inseparable connection between how we relate to each other and how things are with God. James says, underneath so much conflict, there is this selfish desire, this selfish heart, and that selfish heart is indicative of a breakdown in our relationship with God. And I can honestly say this. I mean, I, in, the, in the time that I've been a, a pastor here, 15 years or so, there have been many, many marriages that have failed for one reason or another. A lot of marriages that have, that have broken up, couples that have busted up and separated. But I can honestly say, I have never yet seen a marriage break up where both partners were genuinely walking with the Lord. And maybe it's happened, maybe I'm not aware of it, maybe it could, but I've, I, I'm yet to see it. Where there's a, there is a marriage that's separated, and but I'm not talking about just Christian marriages. I know Christian marriages can bust up like any other marriage. People can be Christians at, at a certain level. But I've never seen a marriage bust up where both husband and wife are genuinely seeking to connect with God, seeking God's will, humbling themselves before God, remaining connected, seeking His will for their marriage. I've just not seen it happen. James says there's an inseparable connection between our relationship with Him 
and our relationship with one another. In every case I've seen, one or both have drifted significantly. Away. They've lost their anchorage in God. And that affects the way we relate to one another. So what do we do about all this? I mean, it's a pretty sorry kind of picture that James paints here. What do we do? Well, James turns a corner in the next verse, and he says in verse 6, but he gives us more grace. And I think that's the answer, isn't it? How do we fix the selfish heart that we've got? We can't. There's nothing we can do. We are so shot through with selfishness, it's beyond a joke. Our lives, you know, we are such selfish creatures, and yet God says, I'm going to give you more grace. The only solution we have is the grace of God, something that we receive into our lives. That's why James says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. It's our selfish pride that does so much damage in so many relationships. And James, and then he goes on and he shows us what that looks like in verses 7 through 10. Now, this, this is not pleasant reading, these verses. I mean, when you look at some of this stuff here, Verse 8, 9, 10, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. I don't believe hill songs have ever written a song on those verses. I'd like to hear it, you know. Let's change our laughter to mourning, everybody. Now, joy to gloom. Imagine Sam standing up this morning leading us in worship that way. Okay, everybody, we're here to change our laughter to mourning. Let's go. Any joy in the room? Let's change it to gloom, you know. That's not a pick-me-up kind of passage, right? I mean, you don't want to read this if you're already depressed. No one's got this verse embroidered in their kitchen. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's part of Scripture. And James is saying this is actually the posture that our heart needs to adopt if we really want to address the selfishness that's so lodged in our hearts. And what he's saying, I mean, James is not just wanting us to be sad for the sake of being sad. He's not just saying, I want you all to be depressed and gloomy people. It's not that. In verse 9, the word grieve, it literally means lament. Lament. And lamenting, you know, we see that all through the Psalms. It's the idea of grieving over the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in our lives. That's what James is talking about. It's to genuinely grieve over the fact that we are broken people. The English Standard Version translates that word grieve as be wretched. Be wretched. What hymn do you think of when I say those words? Amazing Grace? Anybody? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Like me, isn't it, isn't it amazing that that hymn, which would have to be the most well-known hymn outside the church, the most sung hymn by non-Christians in different contexts, also contains the most brutal description of our sinful condition as wretches before God. I sometimes see people singing that or listening to that song who are non-Christians and just think, do you know what you're singing? Do you realize what you're saying? Like if I called you a wretch right now, you'd probably punch me in the nose. But we sing it quite happily. Saved a wretch like me. It's harsh language. But that is who we are. We are wretched before God. That hymn was written by a guy, John Newton, who was a slave trader. I mean, not just a guy who owned slaves. He took ships of slaves across from Africa to Great Britain in atrocious conditions. He was involved in behavior towards slaves, which was so horrendous. This was, he was a nasty piece of work. We think, oh, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. I mean, he was a nasty guy. And one day as he sailed his ship towards Great Britain, full of slaves, it, it hit a massive storm, 
And somehow God used that storm to get his attention and he started to realize just the depravity of his life and the depravity of what he was doing. And that led him not straight away, but over time on a journey towards discovering God's amazing grace in his life. But he never lost sight, John Newton, of his wretched condition. He never lost sight of that. He talks about how he still shudders at the thought of who he used to be. He still shudders at the thought of the slave trade that he used to be so involved in. He always had that humility of heart, even after appreciating the amazing grace of God. And I think this is what James gets at when he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Because when you get to that place and you really recognize your wretched condition before God and you see the depravity of your own heart and you realize, man, I'm a worse sinner than I ever thought I was. I think it's only there that you can really appreciate just how amazing God's grace truly is. As long as we're trivial and casual about our sin, we'll be trivial and casual about the grace of God. Only after you've tasted the bitterness of your own wretchedness can you ever taste the sweetness of God's grace. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. It's the same thing Jesus said Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, to acknowledge our spiritual poverty, our spiritual bankruptcy before God, that is the road to blessedness. In fact, the word blessed is not too far from the word happy. Jesus said, you know, it's a paradox, isn't it? Jesus says, you want to be truly happy? You really want to pursue happiness? Become wretched. Start there. Start with a deep poverty of spirit a deep poverty of soul, not so that you stay in the self-pity, not so that you wallow in that, but so that from that place you allow God to pick you up and you recognize just how amazing His grace is that He doesn't leave us in that hole, but out of sheer mercy, He raises us up and forgives us and satisfies our deepest desires for happiness and pleasure, not in trivial ways, but with His own presence. And his own power. Really at the heart of all this is the gospel. The good news that we are terrible sinners, but we are saved by the grace of God. And James says that is fundamental to our human relationships. Because you come all the way back then to conflict among friends, conflict in marriages, conflict between families. And James is saying, you know, the best thing you can bring into those conflict situations is a humble heart where you know that you're a broken sinner before God. You've come face to face with your own wretchedness. And you know that no matter what that person's done to you, you are so broken before God and you are dependent at every second of the day on the grace of God. That is going to shape a heart in you, a humble heart, a humble disposition that will affect how you behave in relationships. It will affect how you enter into conflict situations. You're going to bring a humility of spirit into that conflict, where it's not this kind of me first. It's not this kind of adversarial conflict. It's not a zero-sum game anymore where there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. Now I've got a poverty of spirit. I'm looking out for your needs, not only mine, and we're going to find a way through this together. And I can honestly say, I mean, I've, I've lived this. I think about all the conflict that Anna and I have had over 18 years of marriage, and there's been plenty. There's been plenty of fights. But I would say the one thing that's really made more difference than anything else is whether we have brought into that conflict a humble heart to begin with. Really, more than any particular method for resolving conflict, 
more than any particular steps we've taken or formula that we have, which we don't, for resolving conflict in a healthy way, a lot of it is dependent on what's the condition of my heart coming into this? What's the condition? Am I coming in with an agenda? Am I coming in with some bitterness? Am I being driven by anger? Am I just coming in to win as this combative? Or am I coming in with humility and just a poverty of heart that is seeking to put the other ahead of myself? When we've entered into conflict in that kind of way, somehow we've found a way through. Somehow, no matter what the issue is, we've just managed to figure things out and and solutions present themselves you might not otherwise have even seen. But that humble heart affects so much. And James says it starts by humbling yourself before God. In his book, Leading with a Limp, Dan Allender tells a story of a university that he used to work at, Mars Hill Graduate School in Seattle. And this university went through a really tumultuous time where the staff of the university were in conflict with the students of the university. There was a professor who had resigned And the staff couldn't talk about it, the reasons for his resignation. But it caused all sorts of issues, and the students were just up in arms. They were were incensed. They were irate at this. And many of the student council had made plans to move on, and there was just this anger on both sides, especially from the student side. And there was this, this stalemate. There was a wall of conflict. There was a wall of hostility between faculty and students. And Dan Allender said he went away on a summer break and came back to a letter on his desk, an invitation to come and meet with the student council to try and figure out a solution to this. And he thought, you know, this is really a make-or-break meeting, whatever happens in this meeting, because if we lose the student council, we're probably going to lose the school. The school wasn't that old at this point. He said, if they walk, that could be the end of it for Mars Hill Graduate School. So he went into that meeting with a fair amount of anxiety. As he walked in, he saw a table in the center of the room, but it wasn't a board table. It was a dinner table. And the student council had come to that meeting, led by a particular student president, and they decided to serve dinner to the faculty. Rather than just sitting across a table from one another and hammering things out, they decided to put on a meal. There were flowers on the table, there were placemats laid, and they sat down and the students served the faculty dinner. And as they sat down, the president of the student services, student council, a guy called Paul, he spoke up and he said, as students... We are here with a great deal of hurt and confusion. Some are angry. Some have made the decision to leave the school. Others are in the middle of making a decision about their future. But we've all realized that in our heartache, none of us have come to you to ask, how are you? Whether you've failed or not, we've failed you by not opening our hearts to you and asking what you have endured through these events. We want to ask you to tell your stories sharing to the degree that you wish. And that act of humility on the part of that one young guy was completely disarming to the whole situation. Just broke through that wall of conflict, softened hearts across the room. It didn't mean that everything was great after that. Some students did leave. It was still a lot of issues. Dan Allender talks about how in that conversation he still got defensive. It didn't suddenly mean all the conflict had dissipated. But that humility of heart opened up a pathway to shalom, what we talked about last week. A humble heart opens the door to shalom. And one way or another, the students and the faculty, they found their way through it. 
they got through the turbulence of those years and Mars Hill Graduate School survives and is still going today. When we bring a humble heart, and I don't just mean deciding to be humble in the moment, I mean a deep humility that comes out of character that God has formed because we've come to terms with our own brokenness before him. And we see ourselves as sinners saved by the grace of God. That deep humility. When that humility is cultivated in our lives, we will bring a humble heart into relationships, including relationships that are really tense. And some of you are in these situations now really strained. You're in the middle of conflict, or you just see it coming, or it's just behind you. But as we bring a deeply humble heart into those conflict situations, God has a way of opening up shalom. He has a way of leading us through. And it won't mean that everything's suddenly going to work its way out because you don't have control over how the other person, other people are going to react or respond. But you can look at your own heart and address that deep selfishness. Allow your heart to be broken by the grace of God and allow him to cultivate a deep spirit of humility. It'll make you a different kind of person. It'll change your relationships over time. It'll give you the humility that God desires. And it will lead us into much better relationships where we can handle conflict so much more effectively. May God give us that humble heart. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. May he work that heart in us over the course of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that in the stillness now, in the quietness, that you would be at work in our hearts. As we think about situations in our own lives where we're struggling in relationships, where there are fights and quarrels and judging or slandering or whatever it is, God. Just think, just among the group gathered here, God, there's, there's so much heartache. There's so much strain in relationships. And we want to pray, Lord God, that you would just, as we sit before you, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, some of us are carrying a lot of anger. Some of us have been wounded, Lord, and the scars are really deep. Some of us just can't see a way through the conflict that we're facing. We want to pray, God, that you would lead us into that, that place of humility where we can see that we are broken too and we need to humble ourselves and allow your grace to flood into our lives. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's just running off after their own selfish desires this morning. And Lord, you're just getting their attention and saying, these things that you're building your life on, these things that you're chasing, they're just futile. They're not going to bring you the happiness that you desire. They're not going to bring you the pleasure that you're seeking. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us as the God who meets our deepest desires in the deepest of ways. And that as we are deeply satisfied in you and our hearts are humbled, that God, we would be able to relate to others even other people that we are really struggling with out of love and humility and kindness. Give us those hearts, the heart that you had, Jesus, and lead us into your truth, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 
415 0455. Thank you for listening.